0: When my wife was uh, about five, six months pregnant, uh, she was, of course, starting to show a little bit. And she had, you know, a little bit of a tummy down there, uh, kind of that in-between stage, you know, where you're not quite sure are they pregnant or not. and uh, she she was uh, she she always had this desire to play a practical joke on someone. And sure enough, we, are in Ralph's Grocery Store and we're, we're checking out our groceries at Ralph's Grocery Store and the, the grocery clerk turns to my wife and says, oh, when are you due? And Casey says, I'm not pregnant. Now, she didn't pause as long as I paused. She went, I'm not pregnant. Oh, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> But for that split second, for that split second, that woman behind the counter turned absolutely white. She was absolutely terrified that she had just asked someone, when do you do when they may not have been pregnant? You see, that woman at the time in Ralph's grocery store did not expect in the least that Casey was not pregnant. She could tell that Casey was pregnant, and so she asked the question. You know, in our Bible story today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and in our story today, Jesus is going to make a statement that no one expected Him to make. In our story today in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is going to say a phrase, just a phrase, that no one, in the house that He was teaching, expected Him to say. The title of my message today is Your Sins Are Forgiven. Your Sins Are Forgiven. This was the statement that no one expected Jesus Christ to say at this particular point in time. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read the story one time through, and then we're going to walk through it verse by verse and pull apart some of the truths of God's Word that we can apply in our hearts today. Take a look at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, and again, he, that is Jesus, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no room to receive them, not even near the door. And He preached the word to them. Then they came to Him, bringing a paralytic, who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near Him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where He was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son... Your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, He said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately He arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, So that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that Your Spirit would especially guide our time today in Your Word. Father, we are encountering a statement today by Your Son, Jesus Christ, that took the crowds by surprise. May it equally impress us as we read it today and cause us to turn ever closer to Your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 1 and 2, take a look at what it says again. It says this, And again, He, that is Jesus, He entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that He was in the house. And immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And He preached the word to them. Now, Jesus is back in Capernaum. We've left Him there from our study last week in chapter 1, verse 38. We're actually skipping over the end of chapter 1 because my good friend Tom Bennett did a message at the end of Mark chapter 1 last summer. He did an excellent job. And so now we're jumping to chapter 2 in our study in Mark, and Jesus has returned to the the headquarters, if you will, the headquarters of His ministry, a northern village in Galilee known as Capernaum. It was perhaps the largest city, uh, the largest village, I should say, in that region of Galilee. And Jesus returns to Capernaum, and it says He was in the house. Quite matter of factly, it says he was in the house. Whose house? Most likely, it was Simon Peter's house, based on Mark chapter one verse twenty nine. That's where Jesus. That's the house Jesus walked into at the start of Mark chapter one. That's most likely the house that he's in right now. And it was heard that he was in this house. News about Jesus was getting around quite fast, and so many many people came to this house. They started walking in the doors and sitting by the windowsills, listening and watching Jesus of Nazareth. And from inside the house, Jesus preached the Word to them. That is to say, He preached the Word, the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. Based on chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus was preaching the Gospel, the good news of the Kingdom of God. He was teaching them how to enter and to inherit the Kingdom of God. And as Jesus continues to teach the people from inside this house, four men, four men hear that Jesus is in town. These four men had most likely attempted to bring their friend, who was paralyzed, to Jesus before. You see, in chapter 1 we notice that Jesus is healing many, many people in Capernaum. But He leaves Capernaum. Because he doesn't want his ministry to simply focus on wonders, on signs, on miracles. He says, that's not why I've come. I've come to preach. I've come to preach, he says in chapter 1, right around verse 30. And so he leaves Capernaum. But now he's back. And these men say, he's back. Let's bring our friend again and see if in fact we can meet with Jesus and see to it that our friend is healed of his paralysis. Pick up the story in verse 3. It says, Then they came to Jesus, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men, and when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. You know, what strikes me most about this story is just the the determination with which these men have. They're carrying their friend on a stretcher. He's been paralyzed. We don't know how. We don't know how long. But he's paralyzed. And they're carrying him toward the house. And they see the crowds. And it might have been easy at that point in time to get discouraged and to wait and see if the crowds might disperse. But no, these men, they keep going through the crowds. And they can't even get in the house. And so what they do is they lift him up on the roof. Imagine lifting, say, a 150-pound man up on the roof. Even if it's an 8-foot roof, that is quite a chore. A man on a stretcher, and they're picking him up and trying to place him on the roof, getting him near this Jesus of Nazareth, this wonder worker who, who has come into town a second time. These men were determined to see to it that their friend got a chance to be healed. It says they uncovered the roof where Jesus was, And when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. In a word, interruption. Interruption. These men completely interrupted the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus was teaching. We don't know precisely the content of his teaching, but we do know that there were so many crowds you couldn't even get in the house. And these men, as he's teaching, are taking tiles off the roof. Imagine if we had construction workers taking the roof apart while I was preaching. Would that be an interruption? You bet it would. People would be like, What are they doing? What is going on? And they're lowering this man as Jesus is teaching. And Jesus is is talking and He's seeing this man being lowered. And finally, He stops His teaching. Now up until this point, the people were just mesmerized by Jesus' teaching. They were listening to every word He had to say. They were hanging on every word. And now the man has been lowered to the floor. And the people are beginning to have their attention diverted. Their attention is now diverted away from Jesus' teaching ministry and to this man, a paralyzed man, who's now been put in front of Jesus' feet. Verse 5, When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Son, your sins are forgiven you. May I suggest that this was absolutely, positively, not what anyone expected Jesus to say at this moment in time. Absolutely, positively, not what they expected Jesus to say. To say hundreds of people crammed into the home, listening to this authoritative teacher, this wonder worker, their attention gets diverted. A man comes down through the roof and he's put before Jesus. And the people are now thinking, forget the teaching. We just have a front row seat to a healing of Jesus of Nazareth. I've heard this man. He's a wonder worker. We saw him come into town last week. He healed so many. He exercised demons. He healed the sick. At that moment in time, their minds were on, what is He going to say to pick this man up? What is Jesus going to say to rise this man up from his paralysis? They had a front row seat to another prospective healing of Jesus of Nazareth. How fortunate they felt themselves to be. Here comes another miracle. By now, the paralytic himself was waiting expectantly, anticipating that Jesus himself would heal him. And instead, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Total silence. I imagine a pin drop could have been heard in the home at that very moment in time. Jesus had now said something. He had now spoken something that no teacher of Israel had ever spoken before. In the eyes of the Jews, a man, albeit the Son of God, but in their eyes, a man had just declared a person's sins forgiven by his very word. I submit to you that statement utterly shocked the people who heard it. But don't take my word for it. I have a video clip of a Messianic Jewish rabbi Uh, What that means is uh, this man is a teacher in a synagogue that believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And he, much more so than me, would be an authority on what the Jewish people would have been thinking at this moment in time. So sit back, listen carefully to these words. It's a brief clip. He doesn't have a lot of emotion, but listen to his words. Take a look.
1: century, and it's common today, want to paint Yeshua, Jesus, as maybe just an exalted rabbi, uh, an important teacher, uh, who unfortunately died a martyr's death. But but the fact is, uh, he uh, shocked the people, the Jewish community certainly, by saying he himself could offer forgiveness of sin. But uh, I think it's very important that in Yeshua's earthly ministry, he... almost always followed up his dramatic statements with a sign, a a practical sign or miracle that would substantiate his claims. So in Judaism, you obviously don't see any rabbi coming close to saying I can forgive sin, just, you know, I will take your sin. Uh, Rabbis could point the way to God and say God will take away sin. Uh, Again, people were shocked and, and captivated by Yeshua Because he spoke as one who had a different kind of authority.
0: Rabbi Barney Kazdan, he shocked the people, the Jewish community, by saying he himself could offer forgiveness of sins. He goes on to say, in Judaism you obviously don't see any rabbi coming close to saying, I can forgive sin. Or, I will take your sin. Rabbis could only point the way to God and say, God will take away sin. You see, in the Jewish framework, based on the Old Testament, based on the Torah, the only one who could take away sin, was God. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 reads this, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for My own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Friends, I submit to you that this was very common teaching to the Jews of that day. It was not a kind of doctrine that only scholars knew of. Every Jew knew that the Old Testament, the Torah, made it clear that only God could forgive sins. The priests, they would pronounce forgiveness based on animal sacrifice, based on the Old Testament practices. But Jesus was making a claim that no priest, no rabbi, no scribe, would ever make. Jesus was pronouncing forgiveness based on His very Word. And in this pronouncement, Jesus was implying that He Himself was God. The response of the crowd. They heard the word, Son, your sins are forgiven you. The response of the crowd right then would have been very, very diverse. Many would have said, and many did say, blasphemy. Blasphemy. A man just declared sins forgiven. He is a blasphemer. We're going to read about some who said that. Others would have said, I've seen this man heal. I've seen this man take demons out of people. He must be God. He must be God. He must be the Holy One of Israel. God Almighty in the flesh. And I imagine there were many, many who didn't know what to think. They were standing around watching this take place and they were thinking, well, that statement is blasphemous according to my Old Testament, but I've seen this man do these things that only God can do. I don't know what to make of it. There was one group of people in the crowd who were quite incensed by Jesus' declaring the paralytic sins forgiven. And they were the scribes. Take a look at verse 6. It says this, And some of the scribes were sitting there in the home and reasoning in their hearts. That is, they were thinking, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, who are the scribes? Uh, It's a fair question. I have a a good resource here that will help us understand the scribes. It says this, The priests were, and they're different from the scribes, the priests were the scholars and the guardians of the law. But in the course of time, this was changed. There developed a class of scholars who, though not priests, devoted themselves assiduously or diligently to the law. They became known as the scribes. That is, the professional students of the law. By Jesus' day, the scribes and not the priests were now the zealous defenders of the law and hence were the true teachers of the people. The scribes formed a solid profession which held undisputed sway over the thought of the people. And what are they thinking? What is this new brand of scholars that has developed in the last approximately 400 years? What of these new professionals, professionals in the, in the Old Testament law, what are they thinking when Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven? They say, blasphemy. Why does this man speak blasphemies? Only God can forgive sin. But not only had Jesus declared the man's sins forgiven. A clear claim to deity, I would argue. But Jesus goes on to make a second claim to deity. This one, an implicit claim. In this second, more implicit claim to deity, Mark tells us that Jesus reads the minds of the scribes. Take a look at verse 8. It says, But immediately when Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, He said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. It says, Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. Jesus was reading their very thoughts knowing full well that they believed Him to be a blasphemer for declaring the forgiveness of sins. Yet in so doing, Jesus was again demonstrating that He possessed the very nature and power that only God could possess. And in a continuing effort to teach and instruct the people, Jesus moves away from reading their minds, if you will, and He asks them a question. He says, let me ask you a question. Which is easier is it easier for me to point and to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or is it easier for me to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk? Which is easier? Those in the crowd aren't offering an answer according to the biblical story, but I imagine all of them knew the answer. Clearly, the answer is, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven you. Why? Because if you make this kind of a statement, such a statement cannot be improved empirically. It can't be improved scientifically. It can't be demonstrated that when He declares a man's sins forgiven, that through science or through any kind of method or empiricism, that the people in that home in that day could prove that what Jesus said was true. It's easy to say your sins are forgiven. You can't prove if they are or they aren't. Ah, but it's much more difficult, much more difficult, to point to a person and to say, arise, arise take up your bed, and walk. Why? Because empirically speaking, scientifically speaking, we know that that statement is true or false. Why? Based on whether the paralytic arises. It is easier to say your sins are forgiven you because that can't be proven on earth. crowd knew this. They knew which was easier. Verse 10, Jesus says, but that you may know that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all, so that, so that all were amazed, and glorified God, saying, "We never saw anything like this." Which is easier, to declare one's sins forgiven, or to heal a paralytic? It's easier to, to declare one's sins forgiven. So be it. Jesus says, So be it. I will do what is harder to demonstrate that I can do what is easier. And so he turns to the man and says, Get up and walk and go to your house. And immediately the man rises up from his paralysis at the very Word of Jesus, He rises up, and He stands up, and He picks up His bed, and He walks out of the house in the presence of them all. Jesus had just done what was harder to do. And He did it that they may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. To do what is easier. Here we have the third and final claim to deity offered by Jesus Christ in this short story today. There are three claims in your note sheet. Three claims that Jesus is making that He is divine. The first is this. Jesus declared the paralytic's sins forgiven. Only God could do that. And the people knew that. Two, Jesus perceived the thoughts of the scribes. Only God could do this. Three, Jesus healed the man's paralysis. Only God could do this based on His very Word. Three claims to divinity. Three claims to deity in one short story. Anytime you are dealing with, uh, I have, um, I, I, my heart breaks for the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are um, a cult, I would argue. They do not believe that Jesus is God. They believe that He was a God or a created God. This is one of the passages I would turn to in speaking with the Jehovah's Witness. I would say there are three claims here, three things that. Jesus does on His own authority that could only be claimed of a person who was God. Jesus is God. What Mark is beginning to do in his Gospel is to help the reader know and understand that this Jesus of Nazareth is not only the Holy One of Israel, He's not only the Messiah which is amazing in and of itself, The people were looking for the Savior of Israel, the Messiah. But also, He's helping the reader and those who are hearing this Gospel to understand that Jesus is also the very Son of God. God in the flesh, possessing the very nature and power that is beholden to God. And as God in the flesh, Jesus has come not merely to work wonders, not merely to heal the paralyzed, but to restore the. Mankind, His very creation, to restore mankind back to God. That is Jesus' mission. Jesus came preaching the Kingdom of God, seeking to reconcile sinful men and women to Himself. And so it should not surprise us. It should not surprise us to see in verse 5, Jesus declaring the forgiveness of sins. Because that, so much more so than healing, temporal healing, is why Jesus came. It shocked the crowds. But then again, they weren't sure He was the Messiah and they weren't sure He was God at the time. But it shouldn't shock us. Because we know, now that we have the Word of God in front of us, we can see clearly that the message that Jesus was bringing was not just merely to heal temporal illness, but so much more to bring permanent spiritual reconciliation and restoration to men and women. Greater still. Greater still than this man's physical illness was his spiritual problem. That, unless properly addressed, would render any temporal healing null and void. I say clearly that unless his sins were forgiven, this man's ability to walk was of very little significance. Now, what did it mean that his sins were forgiven? We've, we've we brushed over it in verse 5. I want to return to it now and we're going to, to close out the last 5-10 minutes here discussing the forgiveness of sins. What does it mean that the man's sins were forgiven? It's a fair question. In our short story today, notice verse 5 clearly. It says in verse 5 that it was because of faith. Faith that Jesus declared the man's sins forgiven. From this we can infer that the forgiveness of the paralytic man's sins meant that this man was now a child of God forever. We might say, born again by faith in Jesus Christ. To borrow the terminology of of the Apostle John. Born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And it says their faith, which is really unique. It seems to me that, that the four men carrying him exhibited faith in Christ. And the man on the stretcher exhibited faith in Christ. And in that expression of faith, in that moment of belief, when Jesus recognized this man believed in Him as Savior, as the One who could take away not only His physical problem, but this man believed Him to be so much more than that. Someone, perhaps God Himself, who could heal something only God could do, who could heal and take away demons and do all the things that they'd seen Him do. This man believed that Christ was the Messiah. Was the very Son of God. He didn't have all of His theological ducks in a row because so many were confused. So many were wondering, who is this Jesus and how do we understand Him in terms of our Old Testament? But this man had faith. And Jesus recognized that faith And in response to that faith, He said, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Equivalent to you will be with me forever. You will be my child forever. You are now born again. Not only am I about to take away your temporal healing, but now I've just declared you eternally healed eternally reconciled to me. Now in this case, let me, let me be clear, in this story, forgiveness is is equivalent to receiving everlasting life with God. I'll say again, in this story, forgiveness is equivalent to the forgiveness of sins is the same thing as receiving reconciled everlasting life with God forever. Same thing. One and the same. But I ask the question, should we always understand forgiveness in terms of receiving everlasting life with God? Now some of you might think, um, some of you might infer, well, yes, every time we see forgiveness, we should equate that with receiving everlasting life with God. But let's zero in on that question for a moment, and let's take a look at Mark chapter 11. Take a look at this passage about forgiveness. It says this, in Mark 11, 25 to 26, Jesus is speaking here, later on we're going to come to this uh, in about a year from now. Uh, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in Heaven may also forgive you your trespasses or your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in Heaven forgive your trespasses. Is forgiveness always equivalent to receiving everlasting life? That's the question at hand. Now, I've heard a great many people teach on this passage. I've read a great many people teach on this passage. And... Some folks would argue that based on this passage, unless we forgive other people, unless we forgive everyone who sins against us, unless we forgive every possible sin that someone can do upon us, if we don't do that, we will be in danger of hell. We will be in danger of eternal condemnation. I've heard people teach that way. But I say clearly, it grieves my heart to hear people teach that way. It grieves my heart, because this could not be further from the truth. If that were true, if it were true that that this passage is speaking about receiving eternal forgiveness, eternal life with God, then it would be true at the expense of so many other countless Scriptures that speak plainly that we are justified, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Such interpretation of Mark 11 simply does not align with countless other Scriptures which attest to the fact that salvation is received by believing in Jesus Christ. Period. So we should not suppose that Jesus is teaching here in Mark 11 that unless we forgive everyone ourselves, the Father will refuse to forgive us and condemn us to hell. No. Instead, when we come across a difficult portion of Scripture such as the one behind me, it should cause us to widen our parameters of what forgiveness is all about. In answer to this question, the answer is absolutely not. Forgiveness is not always understood in the the Scriptures as equivalent to everlasting life with God. Let me explain why. We have two manners of forgiveness in the Scriptures. Two manners of forgiveness of forgiveness that the Bible speaks of. The first manner is this. Eternal forgiveness. Eternal forgiveness. Which I would argue is equivalent to eternal life with God. It is found in Scriptures like the one we read today, Mark 2.5. It is also found in Acts 10.43 where Peter says, He who believes in Jesus has the forgiveness of sins. Period. Period. The person who believes in Jesus receives remission of their sins and they are ushered into the very presence of God after this life is over. But there is a second kind of forgiveness that the Bible speaks of. One that Mark 11 attests to and that is temporal forgiveness. Temporal forgiveness we should understand as a right relationship with God. As good fellowship with God. As good harmony, you might say, with God while we are Christians believing in him on this earth. Sin following conversion to Christ can disrupt our harmony with God. Sin following believing in the Lord Jesus Christ can disrupt our fellowship with God. And so, what does it say in Mark 11? Hey, if you don't forgive those who sin against you, your Father will not forgive you. That is to say, you will be out of harmony out of bounds in your relationship with the Father. Temporal forgiveness, friends, is something that the Bible speaks of quite often as a matter of fact. To refer to our relationship with Christ after conversion. One in which we must maintain harmony with God and when we encounter sin in our lives, when someone sins against us, we must forgive them. When we encounter sin, we must confess it in our lives. Repent of that sin. And go to God and say, will you forgive me? I want to restore that harmony with you. Restore that relationship with you. Restore that fellowship with you that's been damaged by my sin. Mark 11 is about temporal forgiveness. James 5 is about temporal forgiveness. First John 1.9 is about temporal forgiveness. Now that's one that many of you um, may have thought previously was about eternal forgiveness. No. First John 1 John 1.9 is about going to the Lord daily in our lives and maintaining that relationship, maintaining that fellowship, maintaining that harmony. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is about our temporal, earthly relationship with Christ After conversion. It's not about eternal forgiveness there. Why do I spend so much time on this? Because I think this is an area that is often confused in Christianity. Friends, when you come across a passage that speaks of the forgiveness or the remission of sin, stop. Ask yourself a question. Is this speaking of eternal forgiveness? Or is this speaking of temporal forgiveness in my earthly relationship with Christ? Too often we fail to differentiate differentiate the two. But I say clearly, to those of you who have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven today, eternally. Past, present, future. Your sins can be forgiven you this day when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's all it takes. Believe in Christ and you will receive the forgiveness of sins as spoken of in Mark chapter 2, verse 5. As spoken of in Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was through Christ reconciling the world back to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Friends, the forgiveness of sins is available. It is here. Legally, Christ has paid the price for our sin. And yet still, we must believe in Jesus Christ to receive that reconciliation in full and to become a child of God eternally with Him forever. I say clearly, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I urge you to believe in Him this day You will receive everlasting life. You will receive the forgiveness of sins. You will be with God forever after this life is over. And in this life, there is so much in this life, friends, to live a kingdom-minded life here and now on earth. Psalm 130, verses 3-8, to the psalmist says this, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities or sins, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is abundant redemption. And He shall redeem Israel from all His iniquities. This is the God we worship. This is the God we serve. A God who gives forgiveness of sins through His Son, Jesus Christ. Four four application items today, friends. As we close our, our time of teaching today, I want to impress upon you four things. One, Jesus is God. Jesus makes three claims to deity in the story of the paralytic. He forgives sins. He perceives thoughts. He heals the paralytic. Jesus is God. Number two, the concept of the forgiveness of sins must be rightly understood in its context. Ask yourself, does this Scripture speak of eternal forgiveness? Or does this Scripture speak of temporal forgiveness in my earthly harmony and fellowship with God? Three, eternal forgiveness, I say clearly, is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. No sin, past, present, or future, no matter how big or small, can keep you from receiving God's forgiveness when you put your faith in Jesus. Believe in Jesus and receive God's forgiveness forever. And fourth and finally, Christian, are you in sin today? Ask God for forgiveness. Not eternal forgiveness. Your eternal destiny is secure, but ask God for forgiveness that your fellowship with Him may be restored. Our eternal destiny is secure by faith in Christ, but we still ought to ask forgiveness for unconfessed sin as it is harmful in our relationship with God and others. I trust that, uh, that we've learned something about forgiveness today. Uh, don't walk out of here, though, thinking in terms of theology. I want you to think in terms of Christian you've been forgiven. Every sin you've ever committed has been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Every sin the sin you're dealing with today has already been wiped clean by the blood of Christ and he will and God will not look at that sin and condemn you on account of it. Instead, He will look upon His Son and He will say, My Son's blood covered that. And because My Son is in You through faith, I accept You into My Kingdom. And that, friends, should change our mindset about sin. As we realize that we have been forgiven of all sin, past, present, future, in my opinion, that that invokes holy living that invokes and instills in us a desire to serve this God all the more because He is a God who has forgiven everything. Not only what I have done, what I am doing, and what I will do that is wrong in His sight. He has forgiven it when I believe in Him. And that should cause me to be all the more ready to be in a good temporal relationship with Him. Asking Him for forgiveness so that the harmony with Him Can be maintained. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, God, I thank You for forgiveness. I thank You that You have forgiven me. That You have forgiven those who are sitting in the pews this day. Those who have believed in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I I imagine there are some who have not yet believed. And that they are... Still wondering if, if their sin can be forgiven, if what they've done in the past, how horrible it may have been, they're wondering if, if you could possibly forgive that. Perhaps they're engaged in sin today and, and they, they wonder you you couldn't possibly accept them because of it, but yet, Father, you tell us clearly all sin has been remitted by the blood of your Son Jesus Christ, and we receive that forgiveness. That reconciliation in full when we believe in Christ for it. I pray that not one would walk out of here today without receiving Your forgiveness. Thank You, Lord, for it. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.